Over 125 times, Paul uses these phrases, in him, in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we all are pretty much familiar about what it means to have Christ living in us. We talked about that several times throughout our study in the Gospel of John, that when you become a Christian, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of you. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, that is Christ in you. But we're going to think about today, what about where we are in Christ? I mean, what does that mean for us to be in Christ? Well, there's some wonderful benefits, as I said, from being in Christ. And we're going to emphasize some of these things about being in Christ today. The first thing that you need to recognize when you become a believer in Jesus Christ is that you need to consider your position in Christ. Consider your position. Now, uh, this is a very appropriate title or or a subject, I should say, for us to talk about today because we've been going through the Gospel of John. And John shows us how that we can become believers in Jesus Christ. And now that we're there, now we understand and we accept who Jesus is, then we also have to understand this position that we have as believers. So what is your position in Christ? Well, there are a couple of ways that Paul describes it in the beginning of this chapter. First of all, he says that you are sanctified. In verse number two, Paul says that you are sanctified. He says the members of this church in Corinth are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Well, that's a term that's largely misunderstood today. Sanctify, sanctification, what does that mean? Well, positionally, we could put it this way, that in Christ you are sanctified... And what that means is you have become perfect in Christ. Now, there's one thing that we surely know. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. And before anybody is ever going to get to heaven, they have to be absolutely perfect. God doesn't allow any sin in heaven. And so you have to be perfect. Well, since you're not perfect, you have to have somebody else to be perfect for you. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is. Once you trust him, positionally in him, you have become perfect in the eyes of God. Now look down at verse number 30 of this first chapter. Paul says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Christ is made sanctification for us. So in that uh, that, uh, uh, sense, then, we are positionally perfect in God's eyes because Jesus Christ is our perfection. But as we think about sanctification, there's another type of sanctification the Bible speaks of, and this is what we call progressive sanctification. And what that means is, as you go through your Christian life, you are being sanctified as you follow the Lord. Now, that's the issue that we really need to spend more time with. Positionally, in Christ, we're perfect. But every day that we go through our lives as a Christian, we're being sanctified more and more in the presence of Christ. Some people believe in a thing that we call instant sanctification. In other words, when you get saved, all of a sudden, God zaps you just like that, and you don't sin anymore. There's no more sin in your life. I mean, it's just like God fixes up this big batch of instant Quaker oats, And he gives it all to you at one time, and so no longer do you sin. Well, I don't believe that. And if you're a Christian, and you've been a Christian for very long, you ought to understand that already, that God does not give us instant sanctification. All that we have to do is go back and look at some other things that Paul writes. Here is the great Apostle Paul. And in Romans chapter 7, he talks about things that I should do, but I don't do. Things that I ought to do, 
or ought not to do, and those are the things that I do. And so here is the Apostle Paul who has that struggle with sin in his Christian life. So that tells me sanctification cannot be instantaneous. This is a process that I go through. All through my Christian life, I'm being sanctified. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you are being sanctified, or at least you should be. You should be sanctified every single day. Well, what does this mean then to be in Christ? Well, it's sort of like getting in a car on a hot summer day. Let's suppose that you're walking along by the side of the road. It's one of these real hot days like we've had just recently. 100 degrees outside, you're sweating. You can barely take the next step. Along comes a car, pulls up beside you, and the driver of the car opens up the door. He has that air conditioner blowing full blast in there. And he says, why don't you come in, sit down, and take a load off? And so you get into the car. And no longer are you walking along by yourself, but instead you have this car that's carrying you along. And that's sort of what it's like being in Christ. You're in Christ, and he's carrying you along as you go through this life. Well, then, what does it mean to be sanctified in Christ? The best way that I could explain that is that you are being sanctified when you are being used for God's intended purpose. For example, you're sitting in these chairs right now. Uh, Maybe you didn't realize this, but you're sitting in sanctified chairs. That's because we put the chairs out here for you to sit in. And when you come to church and you worship God and you sit in those chairs, those church chairs are being sanctified because they're being used for their intended purpose. Now, as I look out over the congregation today, I see some empty chairs. So that tells me there are some chairs that are not being sanctified. When you go out after church today and you get into the park, go into the parking lot and you get into your car, you turn on the car engine And when you drive down the highway, that is a sanctified car. Randy and Linda Christensen, they have a brand new sanctified car right out there in the parking lot. And they use it for its intended purpose. I think one of those purposes is to bring people to church. And so there's Zella sitting right there with them. They bring her to church. That's using it for its intended purpose. That's being sanctified. Now, if that car was sitting out there in the parking lot and that's all that you ever did with it, it just sat there... Well, all it would be doing is taking up room. And you know there are a lot of Christians who are like that. All that they're doing in their Christian lives, they're simply taking up room because they're not being used for their intended purpose. See, God made you for a specific purpose. He intends for you to carry out his purpose. And whenever God's using you, you're being sanctified. Well, there are a lot of things, of course, that we do that are not for God's intended purpose. And when you're doing those kinds of things, you're not being sanctified. Now take, for example, the the disciples. We talked about them being out on the Sea of Galilee. They were out there fishing, but they weren't doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. He wanted them to be fishers of men. And folks, whenever you take the gospel of Jesus Christ, you give this to someone else and you tell them how they can be saved, that's when you're being sanctified. When you come to church and you come here and you worship the Lord, when you sing praises to him, when you open up your Bible, when you read and when you pray, when you witness, all of those things are part of your sanctification. So you're being sanctified, being used by God for his intended purpose when you do those things. So that's great. Positionally, you are sanctified, Paul says. But he says something else here as well. He also says that you are a saint. You are called to be saints. 
That word saint in the Greek is the word hagios. Many other places it's translated as holy. God has called you to be holy. Who are saints? Well, most people have the idea that a saint is somebody who died about 300 years ago and they got canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. They did some kind of miracle and so the Roman Catholic Church decided they would call them a saint. Well, folks, you don't have to be dead to be a saint. In fact, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not going to become a saint. You are a saint right now. You're a saint in the eyes of God. You're a born-again believer. So that means that there's basically only two kinds of people that are in the world. Only two kinds. There are saints and there are ain'ts. And if you ain't a, if you ain't a saint, then you're an ain't. And everybody who's not a born-again believer is an ain't. Because all the rest of us are called saints. Some of you have probably heard of the preacher Harry Ironside. He preached in the late 19th century and early 20th century. One time he was taking a train to a speaking engagement. And he was riding along with three Catholic nuns. And he spoke to those Catholic nuns and he said, How would you like to meet a saint? Have you ever met a saint before? And they said, well, no, we've, we've never made a saint before. He said, well, how, how, I met with saint. He said, how would, you, how would you like to meet a saint? And they said, we would be honored to meet a saint. We've never met a saint. And so Harry Ironside stuck out his hand. He said, glad to meet you. I'm Saint Harry. And that's the way it is, folks. Every one of us who are believers, we are a saint. In the New Testament, we actually find the word saint only used one time in the singular. This is in Philippians 4, verse number 21. It says, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. Actually, Paul is writing there to the church at Philippi. And what this shows us is that saints in the scriptures, all the time except that one time, it's in the plural. And so that means... As it says in our text here, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. All of us are saints together. Folks, we are all in this together. And one of the wonderful benefits that you have of this position in Christ is the place that you have as a saint in God's church. Well, who are the saints? You know, we try to differentiate it even more. And we say, well, well, saint, that that must be somebody who's a goody two-shoes. That's somebody, they never make any mistakes. They never do anything wrong. Or a saint, that's somebody that goes to church with their collar turned around backwards. That makes them a saint. And some think, well, well, ladies, you know, if they wear no makeup at all to church, that they'll be called their saints. But folks, saints are actually just ordinary Christians. Saints are people who watch TV. They're people who make dumb mistakes. Saints are people who eat barbecue and fried chicken. They're just normal people who've been called at by, out by God, been separated to him. They are saved, born-again believers. Now, these folks that are set apart from, by Christ are called holy. Now, when you think about these benefits, we thank the Lord for this, that positionally we are called saints, but performance-wise, you may not be a, a saint. Now, there's a difference between position and performance. If you had the opportunity to meet the San Francisco 49er players today, and you go up to one of them and you say, well, what position do you play? And he says, well, I'm a quarterback. Well, he may be a quarterback, but he may be the third string quarterback. He's not the quarterback. And the difference between third string and first string is an issue of performance. Both of them have the position, 
but only one of them performs up to the standard. And folks, here's the problem with many of us in our Christian lives. Positionally, we are saints, but performance-wise, we're not living up to the standard that Christ has set. So these are wonderful benefits that we have. Consider your position when you think about who you are in Christ. Now, the second thing that you need to do is to consider your prosperity through Christ. Now, there's where a lot of preachers love to camp. They want to stop right here, and they want to talk about prosperity. If you trust Jesus Christ, you'll be wealthy, you'll be healthy, you'll be wise. And if you don't have all of those things, then then you just don't have the kind of prosperity that the Bible is talking about. And so these preachers, they want to get on that, that wealthy thing. That's the thing that means that you're prosperous. And what they usually mean by that is I sure hope that this sucker buys into that because that's going to make me prosperous if he does. And so they're always talking about prosperity. I remember a few years ago, Oral Roberts. Ever heard of Oral Roberts? Oral Roberts said that if he didn't raise so many millions of dollars, that God was going to strike him dead. But you notice what I noticed about Oral Roberts? None of his family started selling their luxury automobiles or their luxury homes in order to help him raise the money so God wouldn't kill him. I thought that was kind of strange. Be careful about people who talk about this prosperity gospel because prosperity in the Bible is far more than financial gain. Look at this in verses 4 and 5. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. The word enriched there is the same word from which we get plutocrat. Do you know what a plutocrat is? A plutocrat is someone who has power through wealth. That's a person who goes first class all of the time. And so what Paul is saying here is you are in Christ and you are like a plutocrat. You're going to get power through your wealth. And that's the prosperity that we have in Christ. So what is real prosperity? What's the Bible mean by that? Well, prosperity in the Bible means that you have all of your needs met and you have the capacity to enjoy your life. If you have those two things, you are as rich as you'll ever need to be. You have all your needs met and you have the capacity to enjoy your life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul speaks about our wealth in Jesus. He says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And so that is the real expression, the highest expression of, of, of prosperity. Jesus Christ gave up all of his riches. He gave up everything that he had in heaven. And he came to this earth and he became poor in order through him that we might become rich. So how do you prosper? What is your prosperity in Christ? Let me give you two things here. How are you rich? Well, the first one is that you are rich in grace. You're rich in grace. Paul has been called the apostle of grace. He never wants us to forget that little word grace. And so a hundred times, one hundred times throughout his writings, he always talks about grace. You heard this acrostic for grace. Most of you probably know it. God's riches at Christ's expense. You may want to write that down today. God's riches at Christ's expense. 
Because the reason that you are rich towards God is because of what Jesus Christ gave up for you in order to make you rich. So what is grace? Well, we could define grace perhaps this way or think about it, that grace is when God gives you a second chance. And when God gives you a third chance, and he gives you a fourth chance. And he keeps on giving you chances. God's grace, we can say, is when God gives you what you need, not what you deserve. What is it that we deserve? Well, you and I are sinners, aren't we? We've gone against God. We've broken God's laws. And God says that every person who breaks the law must suffer punishment. And so what we deserve is punishment in the fires of hell. But one day Jesus Christ came to me and he said, I'm going to give you grace. And you're no longer going to have to worry about suffering for eternity in hell because I'm going to take your hell for you. And so he gave me grace. I heard this story once about a Navy captain. He made a fatal mistake. The ships in his group were were making joint maneuvers and the admiral of the fleet issued a command and he said, all of the ships are to turn to the starboard. Now, for those of us that are land lovers, Bill could probably tell us, starboard, I think, means turn to the right. You're supposed to turn to the right. So all the ships are turning right, but this Navy captain made a mistake. Instead of turning to the right, he turned to the port. And that means that he turned to the left. So what happens when you have all the ships turning to the right and one ship turning to the left? There was a collision. And so the admiral of the fleet called this Navy captain who made this fatal mistake, and he asked him, he said, Sir, what are your intentions? And the captain said, My intentions, sir, are to buy a farm in Iowa. You know why? Because you make a mistake like that in the Navy, it's over with. You are done. Your career is finished. The Navy will cut you off. And that's true in a lot of areas of our life. I mean, there is no leniency sometimes when we make mistakes. But grace does not cut you off after one mistake. God keeps giving you grace. How much grace do you have? All the grace that you'll ever need because the word of God says you are rich in grace. But grace is not the only way that you prosper. The second way is that you are rich in gifts. Verse number seven mentions gifts and Corinth was a very gifted church. They were rich in spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are talked about in several passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, um, first, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and 1 Peter. The Bible talks about these spiritual gifts. There are at least 18 spiritual gifts that we find in the Bible. And God gives these great diversity of spiritual gifts as supernatural abilities and the special, the special equipment that he gives us to carry out his work. You see, when you get saved... God equips you for his service. Not everybody has the same spiritual gift. There are all kinds of differences of gift. Not everybody has them all. And that's so that we use our gifts in the church so that we all complement one another. I mean, we all have a spiritual gift and God gives us different ones so that we complement one another. Now, we need all of those gifts. We need every person in the church. And that's why we encourage everybody to be here because we need their spiritual gifts. But the Bible does not give everybody the same spiritual gift. Now, not everybody in the church is a preacher. And you can imagine how tough that would be if everybody in the church was a preacher because we'd soon all get very tired of being preached at all the time. At home, I have to remind my wife, there is only one preacher in this house. (laughs) 
And I'm so thankful that she takes the responsibility because I preach too much here. So she takes care of all of that. So folks, when you're saved, what you have to do, you have to learn how to use that gift for the glory of God. You've got to accept the gift that God has given you and use it for his glory. Now here's the problem in the Corinthian church. Being gifted and being godly are two different things. And these people in the Corinthian church had gifts, but they didn't use them in the way that God wanted them to. So they weren't being godly in the use of their gifts. We're going to talk about that later in other sermons about what they did. But the important thing for you to understand right now is that you accept the responsibility of the gift that God has given. When you get saved, you need to learn to use the gift that God gives. You learn to grow in that gift. You see, when every Christian comes into the, into the new life in Christ, we all come in exactly the same way. We're all at the same stage. doesn't matter how old you are, what stage in life you're in. Everyone comes into the Christian life exactly the same way. What does the Bible call it? Being born again. And so we all come into the Christian life as baby Christians. Have you ever noticed this about babies? When you bring them home from the hospital... They have all the equipment that they need, don't they? They have legs and arms. They have a brain. But these things that they have are not yet to maturity, and so they can't use them like you or I do. So a baby, though it has legs, it's going to be a while before that baby learns to crawl, and it'll be a while before the baby learns to walk. You don't take your baby to the doctor after a year and say, Doctor, it's been about a year now, so I think I need some legs on this thing. No, the baby's already got legs. It's got everything that it needs. All the equipment is there. So a baby, when it's born, it has all the equipment to drive a semi-truck that it needs. It has all the equipment that it needs to fly a jet airplane and enough equipment to be a neurosurgeon. But it just has to grow into those things. And that's the way it is in your Christian life. Maybe you don't fully understand what that gift is that God has given you. But as you grow and as you practice and as you come to church, as you learn more about God, he shows you how to use the equipment that he's given. So these are the benefits of knowing Jesus. You have a great position. You're sanctified. You're a saint. You have prosperity. You have the riches of God's grace. And you have the gifts that God gives. But there's still one more area that I want to talk about today. And that is the third thing that you need to think about in the benefits of knowing Jesus. And this is to consider your partnership with Christ. Now look at verses 8 and 9. Who shall also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there in verse number 8. Paul talks about God working to bring you to perfection in the day of Christ. What that actually means is, is the, in the consummation of ages. When God wraps up this entire world, it's his intention to bring all of us together as Christians, all of us in one, and he's going to take us to heaven. But in verse number 9, Paul speaks about fellowship. And God has called you into the fellowship. Now, we really get mixed up about this sometimes because I can look out over the church congregation on certain Sundays and I see there are a lot of people that are not here. They're in the fellowship, supposedly, but they're not even here. Well, you would think that the Bible's telling us that we are to be loners when we get saved, but that's not what it says. 
If this were business, we would, be, we would think, well, God's called us, or some think God's called us to be sole proprietors. Sole proprietors. What happens in a sole proprietorship? Well, you're the one who's the boss, aren't you? You're the one who calls all the shots. But God is not intended for any of us to be in a spiritual sole proprietorship. This is a partnership that we're in. We're in a partnership with others who are in our church, and we're in a partnership with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are two things, then, that you need to remember about this partnership and things that you need to learn. The first one is, you must surrender your independence. You must surrender your independence. And isn't that the exact opposite of what most of us think today? People like to think, well, I'm fiercely independent. Nobody tells me what to do. I do exactly what I want to do. And our favorite song is, I did it my way. We want to be independent. But God says you have to give up that independence. Well, does that mean that you no longer make decisions? Well, of course not. You make decisions every day. But the thing about it is you no longer make independent decisions. Instead, you go to your partner and you ask your partner, what do you think about this? And so you never make decisions on your own. If you had a partner who was right 100% of the time, do you think that you would consult that partner? I would. If I was in business and I had a partner right 100% of the time, if I thought about things and I decided what I was going to do, and I discover that my opinion does not match my partner's opinion, then I'd be trying to figure out what's wrong here and trying to line up my opinion with my partner's opinion. And that's exactly the way that God works. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so when I became a Christian, I decided that I would give up my independence. Now, I don't always do it all the time, and I'm sure that you don't either, but I recognize this. It's time for me to stop calling the shots and to go ask my partner about things. Do you know there's some of you in your Christian life, you've already decided what you're going to do. You've already made up your mind about what you want, and all that you do is you come to God and you say, God, put your stamp of approval on what I've already decided. That's not the way this partnership works. You go to your partner, he's always right, and you find out, does my opinion line up with his opinion? And you change your opinion, if you have to, to match his. So I think that's a great benefit of being a Christian. I've got this new partner, and folks, it is totally amazing that he wants to be partners with me. A few years ago, I had a friend in Kentucky who was uh, a friend of R.J. Corman. Most of you probably don't even know who R.J. Corman is. But R.J. Corman owns the largest railroad service group in America. His headquarters was real close to where I lived in Kentucky. Well, my friend was friends with R.J. Corman. And so he decided that he would like for R.J. Corman to back him in business. Now, I thought about that when he told me. And I said, well, why would R.J. Corman have anything to do with him? He's an upstart. He's a nobody. He's just like me. Why would R.J. Corman want to be his partner? But I thought about that. Wouldn't that be a great thing to have R.J. Corman as my partner in business? I mean, this guy's rich. He's got everything. And he had to have made some right business decisions to get where he is. So I'd love to have him as my partner. But you know what's greater than having R.J. Corman or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett as your partner? It's having the Lord Jesus Christ as your partner. Now, when you think about being a nobody... We are nobodies when we get into the sphere of God, believe me. And yet, 
This is so amazing, I can't even fathom this, that the Lord Jesus Christ wants me as his partner. That's a wonderful thing. And I know that he wants me as his partner because I'm no longer persona non grata in God's kingdom. I'm somebody to him. He saved me by his precious blood. And you know what the Bible says? He made me an heir of all the things of Jesus Christ. Is that a great benefit? What a benefit. So when you join this partnership, you give up your independence. And if you really know Jesus as you should, you give it up gladly. Now, here's the second thing that you learn about it, your partnership, is that you must spend time with your partner. I I preached on this not long ago, so we're not going to spend much time on it. But business partnerships would not work if the partners never got together to discuss things. They spend time with one another. In a marriage, you're in a partnership. And if you spend no time at all with your partner, you won't have a very good marriage. It requires communication and requires time that you spend with one another. Well, in this relationship that you have with Jesus, he's your partner and he wants to spend time with you. Now, the wonderful thing about Jesus is, is that you don't have to schedule time to be with Jesus necessarily because Jesus is always there. He's always available for you. In the business world today, you may have to make an appointment with someone, set it way off into the future and then finally get together with them. But with Jesus, he's always there. David said, if I'm on the darkest valley, if I'm on the highest mountaintop, no matter where I am, I know that God is there for me. And all that I need to do is just call upon him. He's always available. And so when you want time with your partner, Jesus Christ clears the schedule completely and he's ready to spend time with you. Now, finally, when you're in this partnership with Jesus, you need to do this. You need to remember to keep up your part of the partnership. Keep up your part of the partnership. A few years ago, I was partners with someone in business, and this person only wanted me for what he could get out of me. I mean, he, wasn't, he, doesn't, he didn't want a partnership where he had any responsibilities. He wanted to lay them all on me. Well, the facts of the matter here, that in this partnership, God actually does need us. Because God's designed the partnership that way. He needs us. Because in this partnership, we're the only hand that Jesus has in this world. We're the only feet that Jesus has in the world. We have the only mouth that Jesus uses in the world. And so we have responsibilities in this partnership. Oliver Cromwell once had a problem with, with a, a serious silver shortage. There, were, there was no money, no silver to make money with, none to, for coins, none to trade with. So Oliver Cromwell began to think, and he thought, now, there's a lot of silver in the idols that are in the churches. And so Oliver Cromwell said, melt the saints and put them into circulation. You know, there's a great spiritual truth in that. Some of us, We are the saints of God. We've got the title, but we're all sitting in God's churches like statues and we never do anything. And it's time for God to melt down the saints and get us out there into circulation. What we need to do, we need to be busy about the Lord's work. So who are we in Christ? Well, it'd be good for you to think about this. Consider just who you are, what kind of position you have in Jesus Christ, that partnership that you have and the prosperity that you have in Christ. Think about those things. So these are great benefits of knowing Jesus. 
Now, friends, on my own, I know that I am nobody. I don't deserve this partner of, like Jesus. I don't deserve one like that, but I want to be what he wants me to be. I want you to notice this last statement if Jason will put it up for us. And I want us to read this together. I want to be nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Can you read it with me again? I want to be nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Have you entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ? I hope that you have. There's no greater partner than him. He can save you today if you don't know him. And you can get into that partnership. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful partnership that we have. How that Jesus reached down in his mercy and his grace. And he saved us from our sins. I ask you, Lord, if there's someone here today who needs to know that, who doesn't quite understand it yet, that you would open their heart to the gospel and they would learn how to be saved. Lord, I pray for Christians here today that we would begin to understand where we are in Jesus Christ. What wonderful things that you've done for us. And Lord, may we dedicate ourselves to you in service because of this wonderful partnership and and opportunity that we have to serve you. Bless in this invitation today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.